0: The COVID-19 pandemic has changed life for all of us. But even before this, we were already fighting an epidemic, the battle against chronic disease. And those with chronic diseases are at highest risk of contracting severe coronavirus infections. So how do we protect ourselves during these uncertain times? But more importantly, how do we view health? Welcome to the Glass Half Healthy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jonar a board-certified physician in internal medicine and lifestyle medicine. In this podcast, I want to address the current crisis of chronic disease and to challenge conventional attitudes towards health. We'll be exploring these issues with thought-provoking guests to help redefine what health should mean for all of us. I hope to inspire you to take action towards a happier, thriving life because good health comes to those who expect it. What is up everyone, I am your host, Dr. Jonar, and this is my podcast, The Glass Half Healthy. To our loyal listeners, thanks for coming back, and if it's your first time here, welcome to my podcast, which currently ranks in the top 500 podcasts in the US for health and fitness to date. Also, as I mentioned previously, I made it on the board Vitals list of the best 50 doctors on Instagram to follow in 2020. And I was recently voted on two different units at my hospital for Doctor of the Quarter. I'm really thankful for these honors during this otherwise crazy year of 2020. And very grateful to have this podcast as my platform to help challenge our conventional attitude on health and to help inspire change towards healthier living, which would not be possible without the support from all of you tuning in. So thank you for listening. But... I'm always interested in improving this show. So if you have any suggestions on topics you want to hear or how we can make the show better, or to just let me know how a specific episode or guest helped to inspire you, hit me up at drjoner at gmail.com or direct message me on my social accounts, which you can find the links to in our show notes. Looking forward to hearing from you. Okay, today's episode 17 entitled, lost 160 pounds and gained back his life with one of my launch day guests. So excited to have back on the pod, Anthony Masiello. But before we get to that, a word from our sponsor. This episode of The Glass Half Healthy is brought to you by carrots. Carrots provide beta carotene to strengthen eye health, antioxidants to help reduce inflammation, as well as fiber, vitamin K and potassium for a number of other health benefits. So remember, keep calm and carrot on. Get it wherever fresh produce is sold. All right, back to the pod. You remember this guest from his answer on health during launch day. It's Anthony Maciello back on the show to discuss his life, which really is one of the most amazing personal transformation stories I've heard. And after you listen to this, I think you will agree. As you may recall from a prior episode, according to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, 72% of Americans are overweight or obese. 36 million men and 29 million women are overweight, and 32 million men and 36 million women are obese. The obesity epidemic has been here long before the pandemic, and as he'll talk about, Anthony was morbidly obese. He discusses how his prior way of eating, the standard American diet, or the acronym S.A.D., was the underlying cause of his obesity, but a health book by Dr. Furman helped him transform his health and his life through plant-based nutrition, which he'll go into more depth, so I'll spare you the details, but you will hear from him on how his new way of being allows him to live vibrantly and truly enjoy life. Anthony's health journey stands out because he has been able to successfully keep off all the weight he lost since 2005, unlike so many other people out there struggling to lose excess weight, but for a number of different reasons, either can't lose the weight or can't keep it off in the long term. This realization eventually led him down the path to help others who suffered like he once did by becoming a nationally board certified health and wellness coach, then launching a startup. The first of its kind, right at the start of the pandemic, called plant based telehealth. And FYI, we recorded this a couple months back during the late summer, so now the COVID cases cited in our talk are even higher now. As of today, November 12, 2020, our COVID counter is at an all time high of over 10 million cases with 248,000 plus deaths. And those numbers keep climbing heading into the flu season. So, given that chronic disease like obesity serve as risk factors for severe coronavirus infections, I hope that Anthony's story and this podcast can help inspire you further along your weight loss journey and to put you back in charge of your health. So, let's enter the pod with Anthony Maciello. Okay. Thank you, Anthony, for coming back on the show. I really appreciate your time here. So, if you can remember to our last episode, you answered the question about health and your story is very inspiring. I mean, I think for a lot of people who are listening out there, they can you know, empathize with being overweight and wanting to lose weight and you lost over 150 to 160 pounds. And that was back in 2005 and right. we're at 2020. So that was 15 years ago. So to keep it off and continue to keep it off is, is totally amazing. And by the way, I weigh 150 pounds. So you basically lost one (laughs) Jonar. So that's amazing. But so I want to know, like, you know, how that even started. So let's go back to October 2005, with this, you know, insurance policy that you talked about. So take us through that. Yeah. Sure. And thank
1: you for having me back. And thank you for having me on, Joan. I appreciate this. And oh, uh, of course. You know, I, I, I love the opportunity to share my story with the hopes of, you know, that it will help people. So, yeah, I have to take a deep breath before I go back to 2005, <laughs> you know, and, and the truth is, it was a long time ago now. Right. But, um, but it was a really important period of my life. And it was looking back, it was a very emotional period of my life. You know, I struggle with things I didn't realize that I was struggling with. And I overcame things that I didn't even know that I needed to overcome if Mm -hmm. I have to sum that up. So you already mentioned it. In short, you know, my wife was pregnant with our second son. So I had about a, I mean, my kids are 23 months apart. So I think we probably had about a, I don't know, maybe a one to one and a half year old child. And she was pregnant and I went to apply for a 20 year term life insurance policy, you know, just Mm -hmm. to make sure that if anything happened to me, that my family would be protected. And I was proud to do that, you know, as a responsible father and as a caring and, and responsible husband, you know, realizing that, you know, I needed to take care of these people like they were dependent on me. And if something was to happen to me, I would really be proud to have the peace of mind to know that I'm still able to take care of them, right? Mm -hmm. That they're not going to have to be struggling without me. So I went and I uh, applied for the insurance policy, you know, then they send someone out to the house and they do an in-home physical, like a, you know, it's kind of a light physical, but they take some blood, they, you know, they weigh, they ask for permission to gather up all my medical records, you know, they ask for my doctors and stuff like that. And then they go away. And then they actually don't get back in touch with me, you know, about it's not a physical, like where the doctor calls you back and tells you everything's okay, or everything's not okay. The information all goes to the insurance company, you know, for all practical purposes, it's almost their exam. So anyway, trying to get to the point. So I received a letter a couple of months later from the insurance company, you Mm -hmm. know, and I knew I wasn't, my health wasn't outstanding. And I had an insurance policy from a couple years earlier where I was put into a higher risk category, which just meant I had to pay more for the same policy than a healthier person would have to.
0: So then you went through this whole process before they had to evaluate about
1: two years. No, maybe, maybe when I got married, so maybe it was probably 2005. I got married in 2000. So it was probably five years earlier. I see. And now, but now that I was having two kids, I, I thought I needed more insurance. Sure, sure. So that's why. So anyway, I get the letter back and I, you know, it was, I just started skimming it and I really wish I would say the letter now, but who knew, who knew what was going to happen, right? And it just said, you know, we regret to inform you that your life insurance policy was, was denied or declined. Or something like that. Your application was declined, so I called my rep, you know, from the insurance company, and I just asked him, and he said, "Oh, well, you know, I guess they, you know, they didn't put you into a higher risk category. They just said that they didn't want to issue you a twenty-year term life insurance policy." And he was very nice, and he was very mm-hmm. helpful, and he said, "You know, we," he said, "There's another company that I want to try. You know, we'll just have to, we'll just have to start the process over again." Mm -hmm. And he was a little more matter of fact about it. He wasn't, you know, he didn't say you better get yourself in order, you know, but to me, now my background is computer science and I've been working in uh, data analysis for, you know, at this point for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Right. And I know how these insurance companies make decisions. They don't make, right. you know, gut decisions. They make data-driven decisions, right? So which means that they plug in my, all my information. They have this algorithm that goes across the data, and it classifies a risk category. And I know that when they put in my information, it came out, and my life expectancy, according to their algorithm, was less than 20 years. Wow. And, and that was, like, no matter so what. So that was I mean, back in else?
0: 2005. So Five. how old were you at the time? I was 33 years old. Wow. So then essentially like giving you a life expectancy around the age of 50. Yeah.
1: And I don't know if it was, if I don't know what it came out. I didn't know if they, if it came out that said, we expect this person to live for eight years or for 19 years. But I know for sure that it didn't expect me to go for 20 years because they said, no, we'd rather not, you know, we'd rather not insure you. Right. My gosh. Age 33 with an unborn son on the way and a one-year-old at home like that was a really, really hard hit. And I know that you talk about the, you know, the mindset of health and and all of that here. I'm so grateful that I internalized that and that I realized for what it was, you know, if I might've been in a different mood when I read that letter or when I talked to my uh, insurance agent, I might've said, well, these guys don't know what they're talking about. They're full of, you know, they're full of it. And And I would have brushed it off and I would have been defensive and I would have went. But since I decided to internalize it, I actually put myself in the powerful position. Because I said, look, if it's my fault, then I'm the one who has to do something about it. If I would have said it was their fault or their problem, then I leave myself helpless. Because it's their problem, I can't fix someone else's problem, right? But since I made it my problem. And... And the best thing that that denial did was it forced me to take a really close look at what my life was actually like and how I was actually living. You know So just to go down my list, I was 33 years old. I weighed 360 pounds. I had a 54-inch waist. I was on medication already for high blood pressure. I was basically begging my doctor not to put me on cholesterol medicine, even though my cholesterol was elevated. Mm-hmm. It wasn't to the point where she told me, no, you're going on this medication no matter what. It was to the point where I could still kind of talk my way out of it. But, mm-hmm. it was, but I was in a high risk there as well. And I know the combination of high blood pressure and high cholesterol is not, is not where you want to be, right? No. So, so I had that going for me. Then I had recently been diagnosed with sleep apnea. I oh, had goodness. Migraine headaches that would interrupt my workday. I would say probably at least three times a month, to the point where I would just have to come home from work and lay in a dark room because there's nothing else I could do to get rid of my headaches. I had eczema on my fingers. I had psoriasis on the back of my neck. You know, all these things at age 33 that I shouldn't have been dealing with. I right. forget exactly what my BMI was, but it was you know somewhere way off the charts. I think like 44 or something like that. So you put all of these things together. And on paper, I didn't look good. And then when you take it into real life, you know, I couldn't sit in armchairs, right? And I would go into conference rooms at work. And if they only had armchairs around the table, I would look sometimes they had like a stack of chairs in the corner of the room for overflow, right? Like when all the chairs were taken, I would look and I would see if there was one of those with no arms, you know, or Mm -hmm. otherwise, I would just get nervous, and I would sweat and I would go hover over the chair. And I would like squeeze myself down into it. And I would just be there, you know, uncomfortable in pain sometimes for however long the meeting was. Right. And that affected me more than just being uncomfortable on my hips, you know, and in, in being squeezed into the chair. But I realized, you, you know, you can't really be very productive when you're preoccupied with right. this pain of sitting in the chair or this embarrassment of not fitting into a chair when you're around a table of peers or even, you know, um, your leadership teams and and people who you're supposed to be seen as a contributor, but you're there physically uncomfortable. You know, so there were a lot of ways it was affecting me. Uh, I would travel for work and I would have to walk down the aisle of the airplane. I would travel by myself and anyone with a seat next to them, you know, would be watching me, you know, for, for when I come. And then as soon as I passed them, I could almost feel their relief, you know, that I wasn't going to take the seat next to them, right? Because I overflowed, you know, so the daily quality of life was absolutely not where I would have chosen it to be. And I realized that all of that was because of the way I was living, you know, because Mm -hmm. of something that was my fault. The insurance company told me that it was my fault, that I wasn't healthy. They told me that I wasn't going to live. They gave me the slap in the face that made me look carefully to realize all of these other things and looking back now i feel like that was a tremendous gift
0: so taking you back to that moment when you decided you wanted to make a change do you think the motivation was maybe just for you know your own health or were you thinking more of like you know now that i have a family and for my kids and my wife you know i want to live a healthier life like do you recall like what that thought process was like
1: Yeah, it was still very much something that I wanted I thought I needed to do for me, but it evolved quickly. I mean, the reason I went for the insurance policy obviously was not for me, right? Sure, sure was for them, right. And so I did have that in mind, but I still at age thirty-three, I still didn't feel so vulnerable, right? Where I wasn't gonna be able to take care of of others. You know, I mean, I was right, still right. shoveling the driveway and still you know, <laughs> right. making a living. And I was still cooking for my family. And I was still walking around with my kid on, on um, my shoulders. You know, I right. was still doing those things, which made me at that age. But, but looking out, I wasn't going to be able to do that for very long. You know, once right. the kids got to, to 10 years old or, or, or 11 years old, and they started running or bicycling, like I wasn't going to be able to participate, you know. So, mm-hmm. so there was some of that in my mind, but it was still very much like I needed to fix myself for me. But that's a it's a good point that you bring up because a lot of people, it's easier for them to take care of themselves when it's for a purpose greater than themselves. Because we kind of deal with the suffering from our own choices differently than we deal with the suffering that we inflict on others.
0: Exactly. No, that's yeah. very well put. I mean, it's interesting you also brought up the fact that, you know, being able to carry your son. So, because I know that one of the other pain points for you during that time was when you were with your family at that local fair. Yeah. Yeah. So walk us through that. It involves Thomas the train. So yeah, that was
1: another, (laughs) I just had to take another deep breath. That's another one for me. And what happened was the local carnival comes to town and I actually just went and looked it up because now I've been seeing Facebook memories that it's popping up in June and now it doesn't come to town until August or so. And (laughs) and with this year, who knows if it's even going to come, right? Right, right we're not really getting together in large groups, but it came to town earlier that year. My oldest was about 18 months old and my wife was pregnant. Mm-hmm. So it was maybe around July or, or August or so of 2005. Mm-hmm. And I'm walking around with my son in my arms, you know, I'm just holding him against my chest and he's, you know, maybe he has his arms on my shoulders or around my neck or something, I forget, you know, but we're just walking around. He's, like I said, about maybe 16 to 18 months old. And my wife was pregnant with our second. Mm-hmm. And we're like, this is the first time. And if you have children, for people out there listening, you know, when they're almost getting to that two years old, like they're becoming people, and they like are responding to stimulus in the environment, and they right. see much and more interactive want things, and they, right. you know, you can tell, and they can use some words, but they're not really speaking in in full sentences and stuff. So, so it's a really fascinating time as a parent because this thing that we've been like basically feeding and changing the clothes for, for the past, you know, maybe nine months or so is now like alive. It's, it knows what it wants. It's an individual now. It's like really cool. And I was into it. So he was, so Evan is his name and he was looking at the flashing lights and like, you know, seeing all these things for the first time in the crowd. And he was just like, I could just tell that he was, he was excited by all of it. And then we come around this corner, we come around one of the food vending machines, which again has blinking lights and everything else that I, could you get some of the attention. And there was a kiddie ride, a train. And it just went in a little oval. You know, I mean, this whole carnival was set up in a parking lot. Nothing was huge in there. And there was a little train going in a circle. And I think it was a Thomas the Train. And he had the Thomas the Train toys at home. And for his very first Christmas before, you know, when he was about, Eight months old, we got him a, a wooden train, and he used to drag that thing all around the house. So he knew about <laughs> trains, but he never saw one that he could get on. You know, uh-huh. where we live out here in New Jersey, we don't have trains going by. We're not, you know, using subways and things like that. So he never saw a train that was big enough for him to ride. And I never even realized that. But he saw the one at the fair, and he's in my arms, and he starts wiggling and pointing and saying "train," right? or you know, or Thomas or whatever. You know, he thought it was Thomas anyway, whether it was or not. But so I'm like, wow, this is really cool. The kid wants to get on the train. That's awesome. So me and my wife start walking towards the train. And then I hook my thumbs under his armpits, you know, to, to pull him from my chest to hand him to my wife so that she could take him on the ride. And he like grabbed onto my shirt, you know, and he like wouldn't let go, you know, as I'm trying to kind of oh, pull him off. because he wants you like on there too. It's almost like a right? Yeah. yeah. So, so that's what I thought. I thought like, oh, he wants me to take him on the train. Yeah. But there's no way that i fit on the train i mean i couldn't go on the adult rides at the carnival you know to right. be told I, there's right. no way i'm gonna fit on this little tiny you know kitty train ride let alone if the thing would even move if i did get on it so i freed him because i'm stronger than him <laughs> you know at this, <laughs> at this point and i hand him to my wife and the three of us walk up to the ticket attendant and i hand the two tickets And my wife and my son go through the gate, and I'm just standing there, like in my own world, and, you know, with a smile from ear to ear, and I'm watching them go in his excitement as they're going, and they're sitting on this train. And then the attendant kind of like almost snaps me out of it, and he says, excuse me, sir. He says, you have to stand over here. And wait because I was blocking the people who were behind me. You know, oh, okay, you yeah. Know how new parents are. Right. <laughs> so, like <laughs> nobody else matters. You know, my kid is getting on a train. <laughs> so, so he told me you have to stand over here and wait. So I walk over and I'm standing behind this metal fence, you know, and I'm watching as the train is going around in circles. And my wife is smiling and my kid is ecstatic. And two questions popped into my mind. And I first thought, is this the kind of father I'm going to be? Am I going to be on the outside watching my children live their lives? And that was sad. And then I said, and is this the kind of husband that I'm going to be for my wife? Mm -hmm. Here's my pregnant wife who had to get on the train with my son because her husband couldn't take care of himself, you know, and I could put that in any number of terms because her husband didn't care enough to take care of himself so that he could help with these kinds of things, you know, and what was going to be the next thing that she was going to have to do because I was physically unable or what if I really did get sick and I wasn't able to work or I ended up being, you know, in a, in a hospital. Right. And all of these things are going through my mind while I'm watching this joyous experience that I was not able to participate in. And, you know, when they came off the train, they were both happy and excited and it was an interesting time, but I didn't really get to share that part of the excitement with them, you know, because my mind was swirling. And this was even before, this was before I got the letter from the insurance company.
0: Oh, so this happened before that. Wow. You know, just a couple
1: of months, just a couple of months before all of these feelings and all of these emotions, they came right back, you know, when I read that letter. And I just knew, I said, okay, I have to do something about this.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I totally feel for you that, you know, that's hard stuff to go through, especially with having a new kid on the way at the time, you know, but I think in a way it's kind of a blessing because it motivated you to rethink how you were living your life and try to move forward from there in a, in a healthy way. So then, Let's take it to the, the beginning of 2006 because those two events happened towards the end of 2005, exactly. Right? Yep.
1: And, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. You know, I had been obese since the fourth grade. Like I had been on diets before. Right. I had been through periods of keeping myself hungry for months at a time. And I would lose weight for a little while. And then it always came back. So I wasn't going into this super optimistic either. But I knew I had to do something. So I set a New Year's resolution, like Mm -hmm. I had done so many times before. Mm -hmm. But this time, I was a little methodical about it. And I said, okay, realistically, at my size, I should be able to lose five pounds a month. There's 12 months in a year. So that would be 60 pounds in a year. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, let me give myself a little break. Let me give myself two months free. Mm -hmm. And I set a goal to lose 50 pounds in the year of 2006. Okay. But that's how I came with the number. Uh-huh. That I said five pounds a month I should be able to do. Let me give myself a couple months for free. It, you know, like, sure. <laughs> just, just while I figure this out, because I didn't right. have a plan. I was right, right. setting result-oriented goals. I wasn't mm-hmm. setting processing-oriented goals. I didn't know how I was going to do this. I knew what I wanted the results to be. And then I said, I did set a process goal. I said, okay, I'm going to give up sweets and I'm going to give up soda. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to eat less, you know, which okay. in my mind translates to keep yourself hungry. So I did that, and to this day, now we're going back fifteen so years. You know, I have not had a dessert, and I have not had a sip of soda. You know, since two thousand and five, and I can say that honestly, right? I mean, I've had some fruit sweetened things that we make now. You know, sure, but not the process. Delicious food, but I have not had sugar. I have not had anything like that, right? So I did that, and I kept myself hungry, and you know, by the beginning of March, I didn't lose a single pound i hadn't mm. lost any weight I gave up i i didn't have sweets i didn't have sodas anymore, and it was hard because I was keeping myself hungry, but um I had but nothing to go the for. results yeah and yeah. and that was honestly that was more depressing because mm. I mean I felt absolutely hopeless, helpless mm-hmm. like how in the world am I going to do this like i didn't i don't know how it's also worth noting that I was already vegetarian because in the 90s, I gave up meat and alcohol on the same day, actually when when I was 21 years old, and I lost some weight. I lost weight for a period of time, and then slowly, instead, you know, surely it came back, but mm-hmm. I had still not added meat. And everything I learned about weight loss in around 2005, they were only talking about like these Atkins diets and these, sure. you know, they, and they're still talking about it, it, just has different names now, but these right. high protein diets. and I knew how much better I felt when I switched to vegetarian diet. The difference is by 2005 my vegetarian diet included things like Ben & Jerry's ice cream and it included things like, you know, cheese pizza and actually it included pretty much cheese on everything, you know, mm-hmm. at that point. So it wasn't necessarily a healthy vegetarian diet, but it didn't include meat and I wasn't ready. I liked the idea of not eating meat. I liked the idea of of not eating animals, you know, after doing it for, um, you know, maybe almost 10 or 15 years by that time. And I didn't want to go back to that. So I started searching Google for um, vegetarian weight loss. And I got a hit on Amazon to Dr. Furman's book, Eat to Live. This was the first edition of his book. It had just came out maybe a year or so before. And when I read it on the cover, it said, Eat to Live, your guide to fast and sustained weight loss. And I was like, oh, well, that's, you know, that's for me, right? That's right. what I wanted. Then I started reading the reviews because it, had, it already had hundreds of reviews on Amazon uh-huh. or something like that. And nobody talked about weight loss. Everyone talked about getting healthy. Mm. And I was like, oh, you know what? I don't really want to lose this weight. What I really want to do is I want to be healthy. Mm, and, interesting. And you know, I've just put those two things together. I said, well, he's promising fastness, the same weight loss, but all these people who are doing this are telling every, each other how much healthier they are and how much better they feel. And I'm like, that's more important to me than, than the number on the scale. So right. I bought the book and the interesting thing, I did exactly what it said. And the first two months, so I bought it March something. I went back to my Amazon because, you know, they have all my data too. And I, know, I actually looked up the exact date that I bought the book. It was around mid-March. And then by the time Henry was born, my second son, who was born on May 2nd, I had lost 30 pounds. So wow. March, April, May. So a little over two months. Wow. And I was like, you know, That's I was- way beyond the
0: five, five pounds per month
1: goal. Exactly. So, so I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And at that time, you know, having had that taste of success, I was hooked. Like, Mm -hmm. like I knew that this was, that I was on the right path. And that was so incredibly motivating. And I was making mistakes. You know, Mm -hmm. I was doing things wrong. I was learning more as I was going, but I just continued. I Mm reread the book several times. I spent a lot of time reading the frequently asked questions that were in the back pages. I used to read the recipes, even if I wasn't making them. I did make some of them, you know, things like that. But I just kept myself immersed because there wasn't social media at the time. You know, it it was done before all of that. So I focused on that one book, Eat to Live, and I just did exactly what it said, and I kept getting better. And after that initial weight drop, I continued to lose eight pounds a month all the way through the end of the year. And uh, by the time December came around, the end of December, I was down a total of 90 pounds. Oh my gosh, wow, that's incredible. So I almost doubled, I almost doubled my goal of losing 50 pounds uh, for the year. And the best thing is I was already, by that time I was off my medications.
0: Fantastic.
1: um, And my blood pressure and cholesterol were now normal on no medications. I wasn't getting headaches anymore. The weight was Mm -hmm. down and my energy was up and I was feeling like invincible, like I was (laughs) ready to do more. So then that's when I decided I wanted to start adding exercise. Mm -hmm. And I had not, you know, losing that first 90 pounds, I'll tell you, I had not done any exercise at all.
0: So So I think that's an important point, you know, like uh, I feel like there's so much information out there about dieting and weight loss. And you know, there's different schools of thought about how to approach it. But, you know, your case is case in point. I mean, there's so many people who take a similar approach that the, the weight can come off just through diet alone, because yeah. the and diet alone is what has caused the weight gain to begin with. Right, right, exactly.
1: And I mean, inactivity will cause you to gain weight, but not 160 pounds of weight. Nobody's no, right? moving that much and getting and becoming that sedentary. You're exactly right. And the other thing is I was grateful that I did it with no exercise because what I did was I reprogrammed all of my eating behaviors and habits during a period of time where I wasn't challenging my body and making myself feel more hungry and more entitled to food. When people start exercise programs, it really does trigger hunger. Right. And it also triggers a psychological sense of entitlement you know, when, when you go out and you run three or four miles before work, when you've never done that before. And then when the cookie tray gets passed around, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. celebration you're like, oh, well, I ran this morning. I could have some cookies, you know, yeah. but you can't, you can't, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, or you pass the vending machine and you're like, oh, I'm so hungry because I worked out this morning, you know, like, the, all these games that we play in our minds that really work against us are, are, they cause problems. So it was great. It was wonderful that I lost that. But now I was ready. You know, I was ready to start exercising. So I decided to start for the first time in my life. I decided to start running. And we don't have to go too deep into it, but I couldn't run for two minutes. You know, I could walk and then I would jog for a little while and then I would get completely out of breath and then I would walk some more. You know, sure. and I just went out to do a half hour you know, and I didn't care how many minutes of that was spent running and how many minutes of that was spent walking, but I just did my half hour, you know, and eventually the run part got longer until I was doing it on a treadmill because it was January in New Jersey. And I was on the treadmill for a half hour. And then eventually got to the time where I ran one virtual lap, you know, which is a quarter mile, you know, my little, the lights on the treadmill would go around the the full track. And then I could run two laps around, then I could run a mile, and then I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And then I could run a mile and a half and take a break. And then I could run another mile and a half, you know, and I would basically run three miles in my half hour on the treadmill. And then I got to the point where I could run the whole half hour, you know, and it, and it just took months. And then when it got warmer outside and it got nice, and then I ran my first 5k race on the road, you know, and I just continued. And then in September of that year, I actually ran my first half marathon. So that's just wow, nine months after not even being able to run for a uh, for a full minute. Like it just added up over time. And even with increasing my my running like that in my activity, I continued to lose eight pounds a month every month and until September, when you know the two things happened in September. I ran the half marathon and I ran it in an hour and forty seven minutes, which is a, a reasonable time for to run a half marathon. And especially oh, that's for somebody- really
0: that's really good. I, I mean, I don't know how many people out there are listening and know about running halves, uh, but you know, running it under two hours is a pretty big accomplishment, especially if you're doing it for the first time.
1: Right. So I ran it 13 minutes under two hours. Right. right? Yeah. Exactly. Time. So wow, incredible. Um, and that was only nine months after not even being able to run for one minute. You know. So, and even with all that, you know, it didn't increase the rate at which I lost weight. And then I also in September, right around the time I ran that half marathon, my weight loss stopped, and when it stopped, mm. it stopped just as suddenly as it began. And at that point, I weighed 197 pounds. I remember I made it under 200 pounds for the first time that I could remember, probably since middle school. And I just attribute the being able to, you know, the physical fitness, the rate at which I developed my physical fitness, to how healthy my body was on the inside. And I use that as a kind of as a measure that everything I was doing was right. And then by the end of the year, and I forget what month, and I should probably go look this up, I was also able to get the life insurance policy.
0: Oh, man, awesome.
1: I went as soon as possible for the life insurance policy because everyone told me that they weren't going to insure me again until they saw some documented history that I was able to maintain, you know, my, my new healthy condition, right? As soon as I got a normal BMI, And I was off all my medications and my doctor was saying I went from being one of her least healthy patients to one of her most healthy patients. Then I said, well, let me go ahead and apply. And even if they shut me down, then I can go apply a year later and they'll see that I maintained this for a year. And then maybe they would insure me. But instead, they just insured me right away and they put me into a preferred category, which means now I'm like saving money because because I I don't even have to pay as much as a premium, which means that they don't expect me to ever... (laughs) Yeah, they don't expect me to die at all for the next 20 years, which, you know, as we're laughing about it and uh, making jokes, like that was really important to me. I mean, to have that validation, to know that I undid all of these problems that I had, because now again, they plugged in my information and even with that tainted history that I had, they thought I was in good shape and that made me most proud for what it would mean for how I was gonna be able to live my life with my wife and my kids, you know, with my family. I, that it gave me the confidence to know that I was gonna be able to live a healthy, active life. And you know, I'm proving it every day now, you know, 15 sure. years later. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're just having fun. We're doing everything together. The kids are now 14 and 16 years old. So we came a long way since then and we do all kinds of stuff together. And it's really, it's just an incredible quality of life so I'm grateful for all those experiences that led me down this path.
0: Sure, that, I mean, that's such an inspiring story. And I, I think the, the beautiful part about it is you've been able to keep it off. I mean, I yeah. think for a lot of people that go on quote unquote diets, I mean, I, that, I think that's the big struggle is, you know, being able to maintain it and, you know, have it be a long-term sustainable, right? Yeah. I think the other beautiful part about that too is you've kind of translate that into what you're currently doing now, right? Right. So, you know, I know that recently you, you launched a startup. So can you tell us more about it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So just to give you a two-second history on my career. So I mentioned before I went to school for computer science and I accidentally landed my first job at the National Institutes of Health on the Human Genome Project. And it's just because they needed people who could do internet programming in the mid-90s and not very many people could do that. You know, it I wasn't see. something that was even taught in schools. It's something that my, a few of my friends and I taught ourselves how to do you know, late nights in the computer labs at the university. So one of my friends who we were learning that stuff with got a job there. And he said, hey, these guys are desperate for people. Why don't you come down here and work? I was like, okay. and I didn't even know what the NIH was at the time. But when, <laughs> but when I got there, it was cool because I realized that people were passionate about helping others. And right. all these scientists and researchers, they're working there, they're trying to figure out these really incredibly complex problems so that we can be a healthier society. And I was like, wow, these guys are really passionate about helping people. Like that's cool. So I got deeply immersed. And I started taking a lot of night classes on microbiology and genetics and genomics and you know, and all these things. So I got deep into that, into that world. Then when my wife wanted to move to New Jersey. And this was after the Human Genome Project was, you know, the sequencing was done. So I got to participate in all those celebrations. And then uh, we were moving to New Jersey. And at that time, pharmaceuticals started caring about it. I said, well, wow, if I'm here, you know, helping to support basic research, like how cool would it be to actually contribute to the development of treatments, you know, to use what I know to help to build better therapies for people, whether they're drugs or, you know, or other therapies for sick people so that they could be well again. And I thought that was, I thought that's even cooler. So I was very excited to work in pharmaceutical research and development and to contribute to a number of projects that really help people with their quality of life, you know, help sick people. And then I go through my personal transformation while I'm at Novartis and I'm like, huh, you know, a lot of these sick people don't really need to be sick to begin with, you know, they can actually, Mm -hmm. they could actually avoid these diseases altogether. And many of them could actually reverse a lot of their conditions. I mean, when I was put on blood pressure medicine, my doctor told me that I was going to be on this dose until it needed to be increased. But it was just, I was just going to keep taking more forever. Mm -hmm. You know, like that was, that's a normal path. And I got off of that path, right? And I'm like, well, you know, if 80% of chronic diseases are preventable, then at least 60 or 70% of what we're doing here is just enabling people to live unhealthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I got less excited about that. And I said, I need to change paths. I need to more directly contribute to helping people to get and stay well. So again, I didn't know how to do that, but I took the leap last year and I left pharmaceutical research and I'm now a nationally board certified health and wellness coach. And that's how I work with individuals to help them. But that wasn't really enough for me because I can only work with so many people directly. And I've been looking for my big project. And about two years ago, Dr. Lori Marbus and I developed an idea to launch a telehealth, the first national lifestyle telemedicine service. So our vision is to bring lifestyle medicine to people who normally don't have access to that type of care. you know, the technologies and the laws and all this stuff, as complicated as it is, at least it's to the point where we could actually successfully launch a company. So we launched the company in, I think, March of 2020. Yeah, about March of 2020, serving 16 states. And now it's June 2020, and we're serving 40 states. Wow, And we have patients calling from all over. And when i and it all rings on my cell phone if somebody calls (laughs) the number on the website and i talk to patients and i help them to get their appointments scheduled they ask me about the kinds of things that you know the doctors who are on the platform that can treat you know and now we have three doctors so dr lori marbus dr michael Clapper and dr christina miller so we're we're thrilled to have these guys on because they can really deliver like the what i now know as the, the best care in the prevention and reversal of disease and i talk to these patients and they're like i never thought i was going to be able to talk to a doctor who understands you know and they go through coaching programs and then they go tell their doctors what their coaches are telling them about plant-based nutrition and the doctors are not listening they're not supporting they're not lowering medications and now they can right. really have access to lifestyle medicine and they can get the care that they need and that they deserve so that, yeah, so, so that they can kind of get off of that traditional path that I was on as well. So I feel like that's going to be my big contribution, and that's where I'm going to be able to help thousands and thousands of people is by helping to use, you know, use my own skill set to make these connections, to get these patients to see these incredible lifestyle medicine physicians. So the project is called Plant-Based Telehealth, and if you go to the website, anyone in, we're 40 states now, we'll have all 50 probably within the next two or three months. We have a couple of more doctors coming on. So we're really trying to build this up so that it can really serve the nation. And even international consults are available. Um, wow. So, you know, pretty soon we're actually speaking to a physician in the UK next week. So I would love to grow it into an international lifestyle medicine, yeah, service, you know, so that we can sure. really serve the world with this kind of care. So in case you can't tell, I'm a little bit passionate about it. I'm a little bit, yeah. No, you're super passionate
0: about it, I love it. I absolutely love it.
1: And I'm super optimistic with where it's going and and how well it's going in in our first three months. It's incredible. And
0: you know, it's funny you launched during the COVID epidemic. And And, you know, at first, you know, I'm sure you guys were very concerned about how it would turn out. But I mean, I think it's turned out in your favor, you know, if anything, because As you know very well, you know obesity and and chronic disease are such high risk factors for severe coronavirus infections. And I actually checked the numbers uh, before we got on the call. So as of today, I know this is a recording, but as of today, there's over two million two hundred fifty thousand people here who've been infected with coronavirus. Wow. And one hundred twenty thousand five hundred twenty nine people have died from it. Wow. 2,000 new cases in California plus alone from yesterday to today. In New Jersey, where you live, only about 363 new cases. But still, I mean, the numbers are going up. And, you know, I think this is a wake-up call for everyone to reevaluate how they go about living their lives and looking at the way that they eat and the way that they live. So I think, you know, what you guys are doing is, is incredible. And, like, I want you guys to be able to help Many more people, not even like you were saying, not even here in the United States, but around the world. Honestly, yeah. well,
1: thank you. And yeah. I know you're there in the you know front lines, and you're seeing this. But what I'm reading and what I'm learning is that the cofactors with the people who are dying from the disease, are, you know, they're people who are already ill with the with chronic diseases and conditions, and that's really what we can help people with with lifestyle right. medicine. Mm-hmm. That you're helping people with, you know, that all these doctors are helping people with. So if people can get healthy, then I think their immune systems can have a chance, right? They can have a fighting chance if they get infected with something like this. But when people are sick and they're already kind of uh, you know, uh, walking that thin line and then something like this can tip them over, it's really can be devastating. So, yeah. So I wasn't at all excited about the timing. We've been working on this for a year and a half and we happened to launch it just before coronavirus. And I was like, oh no. And I'm thinking people are not, you know, people are gonna treat this as luxury care even though I don't believe it is, but that's what a lot of people kind of think of it as. But right. I'm really impressed that there are a lot of smart people out there who aren't looking at it as luxury. They're really looking at it as first line defense yep. for so many conditions. And that's what it really is. It's first line defense. So people are making their appointments and they're getting well. And you know, we're, we're still young, but we, I can't wait to start pulling together some of the data that we're collecting on these patients to see how long does it take to get someone off diabetes medications, or you know, how long does it take to start lowering insulin doses for diabetics and and, and things like
0: that. Right. So, well, we're out of time, unfortunately. Oh, sorry. I, I go on I, and on. No, it's okay. But thank you. <laughs> I. Oh my gosh, this has been incredible. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, I hope to have you again sometime in the near future. I'd love to hear how the plant based telehealth yeah. Um, movement is going for you guys. I mean, in, you know, over the past couple of months, it's already grown so much. So. Well, I'd um, love to
1: keep sharing with you. I'd love to keep the conversation going and, and, uh, and talk about, you know, more tips for helping people.
0: Yeah. You know. And I kind of wanted to get into that too, but we definitely will save that for a future episode. Let's do it. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Let's make sure we, we, we got to do it. Well, okay. thank you so much. You are an amazing human, Anthony. And where can people find you on social media if they were seeking you out?
1: So it's Anthony Massiello on Facebook. It's A Massiello, A-M-A-S-I-E-L-L-O on Instagram. My personal coaching website, which actually has links out to all of these things is earnedhealth.com. That's where I do individual coaching. And then of course there's plant-based telehealth. I mean, that's the one that I really think is the most effective, most important place for people to visit. And that's sure. just telehealth.com.
0: Okay, awesome. So check them out and hope to see you again. Yeah,
1: well, and thank you, Jonar, for all you're doing to spread this message and and also in your day work and everything that you're doing to help people to prevent reverse disease and, and really live higher quality of life. Like, it's wonderful and it's inspiring to speak
0: with you. Thank you. Well, I, I appreciate that, okay? We'll talk soon, okay? Great. Perfect. All right. So what did you think? Anthony Masiello, what an, an amazing and inspiring person. I hope our talk will help you realize that no matter how far along you are on your weight loss journey, that successful long-term weight loss is possible for anyone as Anthony is living testament to that. And I am excited to announce we are having him back on the show to discuss his health coaching perspective on overcoming the obstacles of weight loss and the keys to long-term success. Please let Anthony or myself know how this one was for you on our respective social media accounts where you can find those links in our show notes. So grateful to have Anthony on the show. And as always, so grateful for you tuning in to hear our talk. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe, like, and review my podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And share it with your family, friends, and online, because sharing is caring. Okay. Thanks again to the wonderful and smart Amelia Liu, my intern, to Jacob Ferrer for production help and to Stock Sounds for the music. And lastly, to you. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode with Dr. Francis Yu, who will talk to us about how self-development first starts by better knowing oneself through his expertise in the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator and Enneagram. Remember, your state of health starts with your state of mind. So till next time, Enjoy the process, my friends. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice, so please talk to your primary physician for that. In addition, the views and opinions expressed by me are my own and not that of my former, current, or future employer. This also applies to my guests. Finally, we do our best to make every effort to relay correct information. We do not guarantee its accuracy. Thank you for listening.